0: Morning, Messiah. The passage today comes from Ecclesiastes one through eleven. The word of the teacher, son of David, King in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them.
1: Good morning. I think my microphone actually is my microphone. Around my head. I feel like it is. There's a bit of a mess up here right now. This thing isn't very straight. Okay, a meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless do a bit of DIY while you watch. <laughs> um, yes Good morning. My name is Heather also known by Johnny as HT. one of the pastors here and with him want to welcome you. we're glad to have you this morning. And We're going to step into Ecclesiastes for the next few weeks. Um, So if you want to, in your spare time, pick up the book of Ecclesiastes. You can find it after the book of Proverbs in the Bible and just give it a read here and there. Um, Ecclesiastes is part of what is known as the wisdom literature in the Bible. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And these books were written um, in different time periods um, for the people of Israel. And it was often that they had these books to find identity in a time of like cultural crisis when government and religion felt unstable. They become like places in their history that were no longer sources of authority and stability, like the government and religion were wobbly. And the people were experiencing like anxiety, kind of on a cosmic scale, like this wild anxiety. Does this sound familiar a little bit? Some wild anxiety. Um, we can resonate, right? A bit of wild anxiety. We have it ourselves. In our own kind of political instability, as we see a presidential change here in America. But there's also like political instability in other parts of the world. There's um, kind of this notion of, with journalism and social media, where we're we're trying to figure out, like, where where do we find out what is true? It gets a little bit unnerving. Like, how do we know and how do we find this fact or get good information? This, like, creates anxiety in us. And then... um, dare I say, the word pandemic. You know, it's something that has, like, impacted all of us personally in some way or another. I mean, the amount of times in the last few weeks where people have said to me, like, oh, I just wish that things could get back to normal, or I can't wait for things to get back to normal, or I'm, like, waiting for things to get back to normal. And that's why the wisdom literature can be so grounding because the wisdom literature of the bible kind of speaks out this reality that the physical and the temporary like moments in life are to be accepted the instability is not something that we need to get out from under us the wisdom literature helps us to focus on how to live in the midst of it in In the middle of the uncertainty, in the middle of the anxiety, without kind of knowing what's coming or the certainty of what's coming, or like there's this reality that there's anxiety, and then the wisdom literature infuses like this grounding notion, like there's a way to live in the midst of it. Which is why we thought it would be good to turn to the wisdom literature in this moment. There's an invitation here of. The questions that we like—what are the questions that we ask ourselves, like here and now? And the goal is not to evade or like get out from under the instability or the unpredictability, but to come to terms with them, to see them as a part of life, and to receive what it is that's happening as it is. Not how we think it should be or how we wish it were or what we hope normal looks like when we get there again. But instead, the wisdom literature allows us to kind of receive life as it is. And so, you know, question would be, well, if we're turning to wisdom, like how would we define wisdom? What is wisdom? And as I was reading over the last couple of weeks, um, I liked what this, these couple of people wrote about wisdom. Wisdom is about trying to integrate knowledge and understanding, critical questioning and good judgment, like towards like human flourishing or human good, and theological wisdom attempts all that before God, alert to God and in line with the purposes of God. That's a wisdom. So Christians, like We as Christians, or those of us who are considering God, we want to take life as it is before God. Awake and alert to God. Submitted to God. We kind of have our hands out. Here I am. Like with all that's going on, like here I am. Here we are. In an acknowledgement, like, and here you are too. God. Like, and it's this open-handedness that wisdom invites us to that acknowledges before God and with God that as humans, we can't force things to be, be a certain kind of way. We can't predict outcomes. We can't, like, have, okay, input here, output here. Like, we're just acknowledging that that's not the kind of control we have that we can't force this thing to be the way that we want it to be. And so we show up in our moments open-handedness, before God, with God, and each other. And so the wisdom literature of the Bible invites us to live with this posture, invites us to live in the here and now, in this place. And I think we we need that right now. We need an invitation to be present to the here and now. And so we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes because it offers us some unconventional wisdom in an unconventional moment. And I think the challenge is that we would come open-handed before God and before each other with that humility that we can't force things to be the way we wish they were or the way we want them to be. And so before we turn to this book, I'd like us to pray together that we'd be ready to listen and hear to this unconventional wisdom that comes from, from this ancient literature of the Bible. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge, like, as with Israel, we now, too, experience world anxiety. Things are not as they have always been. Maybe things aren't the way that we want them to be, politically and in our own lives. And so we need wisdom. We need wisdom to know how to live, to know who to be, to know what questions to ask. And so thank you. Thanks for this book of Ecclesiastes that is the wisdom literature that you provided to give us perspective, to give us grounding, to show us how to live in the here and now in these present moments. And so, Spirit, would you give us um, a sense of openness as we listen in and hear what these words would invite us to? Spirit, would you give us um, yeah, an awareness of your presence with us today so that we can move... Um, like out of that anxiety towards trust and faith and hope and joy. and pray it in your name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Here they are, the words of the teacher. And this word teacher is actually more like a title, like it literally means like a person who gathers or a person who assembles. So you read it, it, says she who's assembling. And as that person who assembles and gathers a crowd of people, going to kind of share this insight. And so the translators call that a teacher. Some translations will say preacher. Like here, here's she who gathers, right? Here you are all gathered. I'm going to just give you a bit of info from Ecclesiastes. Basically, that's what's happening here. A teacher, assembler, somebody who's gathering a crowd around them to lean in, to hear in to what this person is going to say. And this is a person who is a son of David, the king in Jerusalem. That's the teacher. And so clearly this is a descendant of David. David, who was the first king in Jerusalem. So here we have a son of David So this is David's descendant. And so some people think that this teacher is Solomon, prominent um, king that followed David. Some people don't know if this is Solomon. The reason that we would kind of question if this is Solomon, later in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 16, it says like, of all the kings prior, I am like the most insightful. And you're like, well, if you're Solomon, there was only one king before you, and that was your dad. So, you know, maybe that's what he's referring to, but it could be like a later descendant of David and not Solomon, who is this teacher. It could also um, be a Solomon-like person. So this teacher shows up and they want you to like imagine that the person that is teaching you has the same kind of wisdom as Solomon. So they take on the persona of Solomon because Solomon is known for all the life that he lived and the wisdom that he acquired. And so they took, he take, they take on this persona. I had a professor at university that dressed up like the Venerable bead when teaching medieval literature. And you're like, it's like the most quirky human ever. And so it was the time in medieval literature when we were gonna learn about, and then dude comes in with like all this, like soft hat on and clothes and he like speaks middle English to us. And we're all like, what are you doing? And he's like, I am the venerable bead, you know? And that's like a teaching aid. The point is that we would kind of get this picture of what this teacher in antiquity had to say to us. And so he took on the persona of the venerable bead. Some people think that's what's happening here in Ecclesiastes, so that we would understand that we would lean into wisdom. So this is who we're listening to, a son of David king in Jerusalem and then this person um this is like when you look at this one and one you can see that it's different than when we go to one two because the teacher is different than the author so the author of Ecclesiastes is not actually the teacher whose voice we hear most of the time. And that's an important distinction because the author at the end, the author is anonymous, the author of Ecclesiastes. And at the end, the author is going to kind of summarize all the thoughts that the teacher has given us. And so the author is wanting us to learn from the teacher and assemble, kind of gather around the words of this teacher. And the first words that the teacher says are in verse 2. Meaningless. Meaningless says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What a great start. Do you feel chipper after that? Do you feel ready to listen in to what the teacher has to say? It's a little rough, right? It's a little like, take the wind out of you a little. Which is why it's really important for us to understand the word meaningless. It's a vital word that is woven all the way throughout this book. The word meaningless, we find it 73 times in the Old Testament, the same word. 38 of those times it is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ding, 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 ding. Very important word. Very important word for us to understand as we plan to walk through this book together. Because these words are repeated and they also open the book. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. That's how the teacher begins. 1 in verse 3 and then we walk all the way through the book and we get to chapter 12. And at the end it says exactly the same thing, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So this is a very important word for us to get a hold of if we're going to spend some time in this text. The word here is hevel, H-E-V-E-L. Hevel, everything is hevel. And the word literally means vapor or breath or mist. So hevel, everything is vapor, everything is breath, everything is mist. And so you kind of get the connotation when you read it with that lens that, like it's not going to last very long. That this is a short time. This is fleeting and transient. There's an impermanence. It's kind of what is driving the meaning behind this word. There's a theologian by the name of Ellen Davis. And she says, as I was reading her this week about this word and what is being driven at by this word is this. The teacher is struck by the fragility of ourselves and everything we value. All is Havel, passing like an early morning mist. I used to go walking with my dad a lot. And in the morning when we go out early, you walk in the morning and you see the mist. Like and my dad and mum now live near this crag. And so you walk in the morning and the mist is like covering everything. But by the time we're on our way back home, like the mist is all gone. In fact, like this week, my dad sent me a picture of the mist as he was walking. And then the mist all gone by by the time he got home. So it's like this moment or this life that we're living is passing like an early morning mist. There's a fragility to ourselves and what we value because it's passing away. It's fleeting, it's temporal. That's what he's meaning when using the word Havel. And also, like a mist and vapor is really hard to get hold of, right? So if you have a humidifier, because we live in Utah, and the air here is like so dry that you need a humidifier or a diffuser, you know, when you get that going in your house, like it's lovely mist, and then all of a sudden like it's gone. But if you were try, to try to take a hold of that mist, you can't get a hold of it, right? It's like lovely, if it's a diffuser, it has this lovely smell, but if you went to grab it, it would like evade you, it was just like gone, you can't get a hold of it. Again, that's what this word hevel wants us to see. Like, life is hard to understand. Life is hard to get a hold of. Like, you reach for life in one moment, and then, like, it's gone. So one moment things are going well, like this thing with your friend is going well, and then the next moment they're not your friend anymore. Or you think things can go really well in your job and everything's going well, and then all of a sudden you, like, have this conversation with your boss, and it's not like as great as I thought it was. Or you lose your job, or you lose financial security, or you thought you were losing financial security and all of a sudden you get a raise. Like things aren't always as we expect them to be, or things don't turn out the way we want them to be, or somehow there's this paradox that this moment was really beautiful and also painful. Or this moment I put this amount of input into something and I didn't get the kind of output that I expected. Havel, life is like a mist, dude. It's temporary and passing, and it is really hard to get a hold of. That's what the author, the teacher, is saying when he's using the word Havel, meaningless. So the teacher is not saying here that nothing has meaning, but that everything is like mist. Life, it's passing away and it's hard to get a hold of when we're in the middle of it. So if everything is Havel, he asks a question, then what? Verse 3. So then what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Again, under the sun is repeated 30 times in this text. Basically, it just means under the sun, so on the earth. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil on the earth? What What's up with what we do here as humans on the earth? This is a question that's asking us to prompt some kind of consideration. Investigation in what it means to be human Like where we are going, what we are doing, what we value. Is there anything of value from all of this? And the author's goal, as we'll see as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, is to point out the ways that we try to find meaning and purpose in the world and then that wants to shine light on it for us. Like, does that have significance and meaning? Is that as important as you think it is? Does that deserve the kind of weight that you're putting into it? It's like shining a light on the things that we value and the things that we prioritize and the things that we use our time over and over again towards. And the goal of the author is to shine a light on it and sometimes that's going to make us maybe feel a little uncomfortable. And the first section here that the author calls us attention is to time, to time. We're all familiar with time. We all have a watch or a phone, like we're all privy and kind of connected to time. And so here we're asked to consider time in this first chapter. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever forever. Like the Wasatch Mountain Range, you know? Like you walk outside and you see the Wasatch Mountain Range. Like the pioneers come and the pioneers go. You, you and I are here now. We'll be gone. And what's going to stand magnificently? The Wasatch Mountain Range. Like how many people have stood in this space that the Wasatch Mountain Range could like give us insight on? Hey, like, can you tell us a little about like all the different generations of people that have lived here? It's basically what the author is saying to us. Generations come and generations go, but the earth, the mountains, like they're standing, they're there. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises again. It rises and it falls and it hurries back and it's up again and it's down and it's up again, Right? Every day, there's a new day. That's a picture of time. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. There's an insatiability to what it means to live here under the sun on earth, right? There's an insatiability to the sea. It's never full. It's always got more water flowing into it, but it's never full. It's like compared then, the the teacher then compares that to like the insatiability of who we are as humans. We never have our full. We always want more. The ear is never full. We always kind of are in this space where we want more and more and more. There's an insatiability to what it means to live under the sun. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Right, technologies may develop, but the concepts behind them are universally true. There's a quote that I read that kind of aptly summarized all of this. And it says, we go about the mill of life, always going through the same motions, always coming to the same place again. I mean, that round of hunger, right? We woke up this morning, we were having breakfast, and maybe your tummies are rumbling a little and being like, time for lunch, right? Round and round we go. It's time for food again. Then we're satiated. And then we go to bed, then we get up we empty ourselves. I love that. Emptying ourselves. Sounds, sounds very British. Filling ourselves, one thing after the other. And we never stop going around in circles. I feel like any one of you could say that to me. Like, oh, you know, we go, we get lunch, then we get dinner, and it, we're going around in circles. Like, any one of you could have said that to me, that exact statement. Could have read it in the New York Times, could have read it on Facebook. Like, this is... The monotony of life. But the person that wrote this is Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa lived in Turkey in the fourth century. And when he was talking about Ecclesiastes, like this is what Gregory of Nyssa said. And I was like, the fact that a dude in Turkey in the fourth century can write something that still resonates in the 21st century kind of illustrates the teacher's point in Ecclesiastes, right? It's not so abstract. It's not so historical. It's like, no, it's this thing that happens consistently and generations and generations go by and we still resonate with the same kind of sayings. Cheers, Gregory. Right? Time doesn't serve us. We serve time and it repeats generation to generation. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. My grandpa died, it must be about 15 years ago, and at his funeral, we had a tent in England, and it was outside, and we had this family friend come to the funeral. Um, He was in his 80s at the time. My grandfather was 95-ish when he died, and so his good friend in his 80s was still really articulate, and so my, his good friend, Stuart, decided to get up and talk about my grandfather. And I'll never forget the words that he shared about my grandfather, because he said, um, he used um, Hebrews, and he, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about like, letting the people who've gone before us, like imitating them, especially imitating their faith and their trust in God. And that's like a deeply biblical practice is to remember. And the reason that we remember the people that have gone before us and the ways that they've lived is because it connects us to their own faith and to their experience. And in so doing, it kind of shows us like what gives us the power in moments of instability and change and uncertainty, because we learn, and we see, and we watch, and in so doing, in remembering, then we ourselves have, like, a sense of what that faith looks like, and we live it out in remembering them. That's like a deeply biblical concept, that we would do that in order to grow, and rest, and solidify our faith. We do that in moments of uncertainty, but also in moments of monotony where things just feel boring, like Zoom calls and our own four walls. Like we need something that will call us into resiliency and consistency and what we would call that is faith. But the teacher says, we don't do it. We don't do that. We don't remember the generations that have gone before us. And maybe for some of us, we don't have that. You don't have somebody in your life that you can think of that's given you that picture of faith. And the teacher says, we don't remember the generations that have gone past us. What's the name of your great-great-great-grandma? Am I right? The teacher just lets it hang He doesn't add a corrective or any action step steps to kind of remedy this he just says like we don't do it and reiterates the question like what do people gain from all that we do here on the earth under the sun when time is limited and passing by and we often are not paying attention the book of Ecclesiastes will teach us that our energy and our emotion goes into a lot of things that don't have lasting meaning and significance. And the lesson here in chapter one is that we would stop and consider the march of time. The wisdom here is an invitation to consider that time passes by, that it moves along and that we pass by and move along with it. And you know what? This might sound like a bit of a paradox, which is kind of like Havel, but that's actually good news. It's good news that time doesn't serve us. Do you know why it's good news? Because it lessens our illusion of control. And there's a strange joy in that. Realizing that we're not in control. We don't have to fear that time will beat us, or that we're running out of it, or that we need to get away from bad time. When we get the perspective that we need, it's good news. The amount of news articles and posts this week that are like, good riddance to 2020. Like, that was the worst year ever. Thankful farewell to 2020, right? Every time I felt like I clicked on like a news article, that was like the, the new year. Thankfully, we're in 2021. See ya, 2020. And I kept thinking like, why do we want it to be behind us? Why are we so desperate to get away? from 2020 like there's some things we could name but it's like what exactly are we trying to get away from in the last year like i'm sitting in ecclesiastes with the teacher and then i wake up on new year's morning and i get a text from a friend who doesn't live here in town she lives elsewhere and she wrote this i think she sent it to a number of us and she wrote this she wrote good morning and happy new year welcome to flight 2021 We are prepared to take off into the new year. Please make sure your positive attitude and gratitude are secured and locked in the upright position. All negativity, hurt, and discouragement should be put away. Should you lose your positive attitude under pressure during flight, reach up and pull down a prayer. There will be no baggage allowed on this flight. God, our captain, has cleared us for takeoff Destination greatness, welcome to 2021. And honestly, it was like a whiplash. I'm like, what? I was kind of taken aback. Like after spending so much time in Ecclesiastes over the last couple of weeks, like that is the the text that I wake up to on New Year's morning. Sometimes, sadly, our language of faith, like, props up a myth that life is about greatness and pulling down prayers so that we get what we want, so that we're on our way to greatness and that hopefully God is on our side so that things will turn out exactly as we expected and no baggage allowed. That's superficiality. That's a superficial real- religion. And it is not wisdom. It's a joke. Because what happens when that doesn't happen? We don't have a lot that we're holding on to. When we show up like that, whether we believe that we can like produce, succeed, or when we show up with that kind of spirituality, we are not holding our humanity with humility. And that is what this poem that is put here at the beginning of Ecclesiastes wants us to do. It wants us to hold our humanity with humility. And when we do, we gain perspective. And we learn that we don't need to hurry away from an unpredictable, unsettled, unstable year. We don't need to hurry away from an unpredictable, unsettled, unstable life. We can let it teach us. We can learn from it. That's what gives us wisdom. It's what turns us into the people that have a kind of faith that's worth imitating. So, I have some homework for you because I'm a teacher today. A couple of questions. How can this last year, 2020, teach you to hold your humanity with humility? What did this year teach you about your humanity? How can this year call you into humility? How can this last year teach you to hold your humanity with humility? And what can you gain from letting go of the illusion of control? Then a thing that we've learned from this last year is that we are not in control. So what can you gain from letting go of that illusion? Freedom and trust are born in us when we acknowledge before God and each other our own limitations. Freedom and trust are born in us when we acknowledge before God and each other our own human limitations. And we learn to live. Simply live. I was texting with a friend last night about preaching from Ecclesiastes. She's also a preacher. And she says, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live. She said to dare them to live. And I was like, oh, yeah. Dare them to live. Not to get out from underneath the anxiety. To wish things were back to normal, though. It's not such a bad wish. But the dare of this book and of this poem is that we would live. Not with sights on the normal or better or good, but today. Open-handed. Before God. Before each other. And every week we take communion and we're confronted with our own limitations that we're depending on a God who gives us life to hold us, to lead us, to guide us as time marches on. And so if you want to right now, you can take this with me. As we open this, we acknowledge that we need to be sustained by something other than ourselves, that we're limited so just as we do this quietly, think again of how do you get to hold your humanity with humility? What can you gain from letting go of the illusion of control? And the offer that we get in Christ is that we have freedom. Freedom to live every day in trust Acknowledging before God our own limitations. Let's pray. Jesus, we are aware of our own limitations as we drink this juice and we eat this wine. We need food to sustain us, to keep us alive. It's a gift to be able to acknowledge our limitations, that we're not in control, that we can't force things to be the way that we want them to be, that our inputs don't always equal the outputs that we want. And yet there's a strange joy that comes in that acknowledgement. And that joy is that we have freedom freedom to live that we don't have to try and get out from under things that are unpredictable or uncertain but instead we can hold ourselves out before you and each other and live and learn to trust and so I pray that that's who you would make us not with weird spiritual language that tries to pretend that everything is okay and good but that instead acknowledges weakness and limitation and fear and anxiety and shows up to live in the midst of all of that. And so ground us, Lord Jesus, in wisdom so that we can be a people that hold this space well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.